The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Love that line in that last song we sang. That's one of my favorite songs that, that we sing, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. But one of my favorite lines within one of my favorite songs there is um, the line that's dealing with ruined nature sinking in years. And uh, some of you who are older than I am can appreciate that more from your perspective more than I currently do. But I still appreciate it because I'm getting older and I feel ruined nature sinking under the years of my life as time goes on. And um, the, the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the hope of the gospel is that even when ruined nature finally sinks under the weight of its years, it sinks in death, the robe of Christ is ever new. It does not fade. It will never diminish in its glory or power. It will continue to cover me even in my greatest moment of need in the greatest expression of my own shame and sinfulness and death. Even there, Christ's robe will cover me and will be enough for me. So I, I love that song. I hope that you rejoice in that song as much as I do. Well, good morning again to you all. I, I don't like the mornings when I give announcements because all you get is me talking at you and then we singing together. Uh, I hope it's not coming across as an unpleasant experience this morning. But I do want to give a couple of notes uh, before we get into the sermon today. Um, a couple of things I want to make mention of. Uh, one is concerning uh, taking notes. Uh, most of you, in fact, I would say like 90% of you all are note takers. And you're out there and you're feverishly writing notes as I'm talking and... Uh, and that's great. I don't, want to, I don't want to knock that. If you can worship the Lord under the preaching of the word and be one who is writing notes like that, then praise the Lord. I don't want to hinder that. However, I do want to make sure that you are aware of the freedom that you have in the Lord not to take notes. And 
and I don't mean that in, a, in any cutting way or snarky way. I know sometimes I can say things and you're wondering, man, was that sarcasm or what was that? No, I don't, I don't mean this in any sarcastic way, but I, I do want you to know that you are free in Christ not to take notes, but just to sit and listen to the preaching of the word. And if you desire to take notes, we make all of these sermons available online. You can go back and listen to it over again if you want, and you can take notes then. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because I, I do have a number of people who come up to me uh, saying, that was, that was such a good, there was so much good stuff in that sermon that as I was writing things down, I couldn't keep up. And, and I lost track of where you were going on this point or that point. It's like, I don't want that to happen for you. And if you're experiencing that in my preaching, maybe it's better not to take notes as you're listening the first time and just come back to it sometime during the week and listen to it again and take notes then. Maybe that would be more helpful. Or you could email me and I'm more than happy to send you a transcript of what I preached. It won't be exact, but it'll generally convey the information. Martin Lloyd-Jones in, in his uh, church body would not let people take notes <laughs> under his preaching and because uh, he viewed it as a distraction. And uh, so, anyway, so that's one note. And then secondly, the last two weeks we've been, fo- you know, we've been focusing on uh, the means of grace and the last two weeks we focused on baptism as a means of grace. And um, I just wanted to throw out there the invitation to approach the elders, if you are one who's come to realize that you need to be baptized. Um, as I said in the last couple of messages, the New Testament knows nothing of someone being a Christian who has not gone down into the waters of identification with Christ. And so if you are one who has not been baptized, please come talk to the elders and we will work out a time when we can get that done. Okay? Amen? Amen. All right. Well, today, as I, as I just mentioned, we're, uh, we're continuing on in our short series titled Growing in Grace, looking at the means of grace as God's appointed means of helping us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at the command, 2 Peter 3, 18. We are commanded by the Lord to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But as we've seen before, we can't do that. We can't make ourselves grow in grace. We can't make ourselves mature in Christ. That's entirely up to the prerogative. I mean, that's the Lord's prerogative, and it's up to His will as to whether or not He will, in the the language of Hebrews 6.3, whether or not He will permit us to move on to maturity. That is all in in the hands of the Lord. And yet we're commanded to make sure that we're growing in grace. So how do we balance these things? How do we walk through this and obey this commandment in light of the whole counsel of God's Word? in teaching our responsibility and God's sovereignty in our lives. Well, um, as we've been looking at in church history, believers have recognized that the way that we are going to obey commands like this and yet recognize and lean upon our dependence on God to make us grow is by giving ourselves over to the means of grace. Uh, These are instruments that God has uh, promised He will use to cause our souls to mature in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we in faith give ourselves over to the practice of the means of grace, God promises to meet us there and cause us to grow in the grace of Christ. Now we've looked at two of the most important means so far, 
John 17, 17 being the word of God as a means of grace, what the Lord uses to sanctify his people primarily. And then we've been looking the last couple of weeks at the means of grace in baptism. First uh, Peter 3.21 says that baptism now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, baptism is a means of grace in that it is the means God has appointed for us to call upon Him for salvation. Now today we're going to be looking at uh, the next ordinance that Christ has appointed in the worship of the church, which is the ordinance of the Lord's table and looking at the Lord's table as a means of grace. So as we get into that this morning, would you pray with me again for the Lord's blessing? Lord, in our pride, we can at times forget how needy and dependent we are upon you. And um, Lord, in our arrogance, we can, we can run ahead of you and uh, seek to do certain, seek to, to accomplish certain aspects of your will for our lives without doing the first and the, the primary thing, which is tarrying with you. Lord, and waiting upon you to fill us with strength, to minister to our hearts by your spirit with the truth, and to conform us more to the image of your Son. Lord, I know that when you, when I wait upon you to do that work in my life, and I meet you in that way that you have appointed for fellowship, Lord, I know that I feel empowered afterward to do anything. With, with David, I could, I could leap over a wall and I could run a, upon a troop with you when I've sensed that you have strengthened my hands to bend a bow of bronze and you've taught my hands to wage war. But Lord, in our pride, sometimes we run ahead of you and we don't tarry with you and we don't wait for that strengthening and we feel left alone. And uh, Lord, you know those times you recognize where each one of us is at each moment. And you know when we're distracted and you know when we're not distracted. You know when our hearts are divided and when they're undivided. You know when we have a double mind and when we have a single mind. Or there's no fooling you. There's no pretense with you. We can't play games with you. We can come in here and put a mask on for one another, but we cannot do that with your Holy Spirit, the one who searches our hearts. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would strengthen us this morning to be real with you or to, to be humble before you, to renounce our pride, to forsake our sin, and to cling to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where he was ripped apart so that we might be made whole. Lord, help us see and taste and know the glory of grace that's revealed in Christ and please give us the strength to walk in the power of that grace as we move forward in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Would you please be with us? Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Well, when we're talking about the table of the Lord as a means of grace, this, I need to acknowledge from the beginning, this is a very large topic. Um, I was intimidated to preach on baptism as a means of grace. I'm doubly so. <laughs> Why would you say that? I'm doubly intimidated to preach upon the Lord's table as a means of grace. And frankly, I've had a very difficult time of even discerning where to start as we talk about the Lord's table as a means that God uses to strengthen our hearts in the grace of Christ. I thought it might be helpful, though, to start by looking at the central place that worship at the table has had in the life of the church, both in the scriptures and in church history. Uh, in the New Testament, we find that the Lord's table was at the heart of corporate worship in the church. When I say at the heart of corporate worship, I mean it was like at the center of what the body of Christ did when they gathered together as the church. Right, 1 Corinthians 11 language is when you come together as the church, when you come together as the ecclesia, the gathering of the saints, the people of God, when you come together in the assembly, uh, the celebration of the Lord's table was a central feature in what corporate life looked like and what worship as a church body actually consisted in. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see that worship at the table of the Lord is one of the four pillars of corporate fellowship that was established or erected in the life of the early church. Acts 2.42 says, so then those who had, or this is 2.41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls to the church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now the phrase breaking of bread is what we're focusing on there in that verse. That phrase is describing the practice of communion. And I don't have the time to lay out a full argument for why that is the case here this morning. I can only point to a couple of other verses to show you that this is talking about the practice of celebrating the Lord's table. The only other time this exact phrase appears is in Luke chapter 24, verse 35, where the disciples on the road to Emmaus had met Christ after his resurrection, and Christ had kept himself from being recognized by them. And they kept begging him to stay with them, and eventually the Lord did. He went into the home with them, and they were having a meal together. And the disciples didn't recognize Christ until, as this verse says, Jesus took up the bread and began to break it. They related it to the apostles saying that it was in the breaking of the bread that we began to recognize this is the Lord Jesus. Now that is the one place where that exact phrase from Acts 2.42 appears, breaking of bread. It's in Luke 24.35 and clearly that's in reference to that first part of celebration and worship of the Lord at his table. And uh, you can see that again if you go to Acts 20, verse 7, where it says that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, 
and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, I would love if you gave me the liberty <laughs> to prolong my message until midnight. We would just make sure that no one was sitting in any windows. And uh, another story. But you notice in this verse that it was on the first day of the week, right? That's the day when the church gathered together as the corporate assembly, the Lord's Day, as it's termed in the scriptures. The first day of the week, they gathered together to worship the Lord when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, what's that talking about? Well, that's talking about the same thing Acts 2.42 is talking about. That's talking about the same thing that Luke 24.35 is talking about. That's talking about celebration of what the Lord Jesus has done for our souls to save us from our sins at the table of the Lord. Now, what I find interesting about this verse is that this verse really makes to break bread, the breaking of bread and celebration of the table, central to everything that was being done in the church gathering. So they gathered for the purpose of breaking bread. Isn't that amazing? In fact, in the New Testament, it seems as though every single time the church body got together, they were celebrating the Lord's table together. Not quarterly, not once a month even, but every single meeting that they had. Now, taken together, I just bring these out. Uh, forgive my rushing through that, but I just bring these verses to you to point out that worshiping Christ in the breaking of the bread has been a central focus of corporate fellowship in the church from the very beginning. And I think the reason for this is simple. It's because they understood how important worship at the table is for the spiritual well-being of the church. The sad reality is that this emphasis that we find in the New Testament on the centrality of the Lord's table is in large measure missing in our day. For many people today, the Lord's table has no real significance, or if there is any, it has very little significance or bearing upon their spiritual lives, whether that's talking about in the corporate setting or even on a personal level. I don't mean that you can partake in the table of the Lord personally. That's not biblical. The only time that celebrating the Lord's table was to be practiced was in the corporate gathering of the church, when you were gathered together physically, which is why taking communion over online services will not work. <laughs> right? that's, that's not upholding the intention of God or Christ and establishing the table of the Lord as, an, as a means of worship. But for many people in our day, the Lord's table has very little or no significance to their spiritual lives. Um, I was shocked whenever I read an account by a man named James Renahan. He's a Baptist pastor. He shared an experience that he had when he visited a large church one time. He says that he walked in and he noticed that there were four tables positioned uh, evenly throughout the auditorium. And on those tables, there were the elements of bread and then the cup of juice. And uh, in the bulletin, when he sat down, he's wondering, okay, that must just be where we go to get the elements, and then we're going to come back and we're going to partake of it together. Well, he noticed an announcement in the bulletin that morning that read, if anyone feels the need to observe the supper, they are free to do so on a self-serve basis. Now, I was shocked whenever I read that, but as I studied other people and listened to other sermons on this topic, I began to realize this is actually a pretty common experience. 
Now that not only shows an astonishing ignorance of scriptural instruction on how we are to practice worship at the table, but it also shows a severe, a severe deficiency in our understanding of the significance and the meaning and the importance of worship at the table, a, a, a deficiency that is worth mourning over. See, no wonder the church in the West is in the state that it's in. We, we look around at the church and we wonder what in the world is going on. Well, when we have ridiculous practices like this being upheld as something that's biblical or God-honoring or Christ-exalting, no wonder we're in the state we're in. It's not difficult to look around and diagnose our problem. Our problem is that we are not being fully obedient and conformed to the will of God revealed in the Scriptures. That's it. We don't need any psychoanalysis to make that known to us, right? It's not as though the Spirit of God has left us. It's that the Spirit of God is not going to bless our half means of obedience. He will not own that and bless it for the growth of the church. We're all in or we're not, we're not at all in, right? I think it's what's even worse about that kind of practice of the Lord's table or that deficient understanding of the Lord's table and what's going on in the table. What's even worse than the practice itself is the fact that many people find themselves content to leave it that way. As if, as if that's, that's adequate. That is enough. That's all that is intended in celebrating the table of the Lord. Just go do it. If you feel led, if you feel the need, just go do it on your own. Now, that's an extreme case in my, in my view, but I think even among those who have a higher view of the importance of the table, as is the case with baptism, I fear that most believers would struggle to explain why worship at the table is so important. Now, we know that it is important, right? We all know that partaking in the Lord's table is important. Otherwise, Christ would not have commanded us to partake in the table. He wouldn't command us to do something that's unimportant. But if we were really pressed to explain why it's important, and why it's important not just as a practice, but why it's important to our spiritual well-being, I don't think many of us would be able to give an answer. We know from Scripture that God thinks that the table, and worship at the table, is very important. So much so that he warns us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven that if we eat and drink at the table in an unworthy manner, it says that God will hold us personally accountable for the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to pay attention to the language in this verse. It does not say that the Lord will hold you accountable for the bread and the cup that represent or symbolize the body and blood of the Lord. It says, if you partake in the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you will be held guilty of the slaughter of the Son of God. That's a very serious way of communicating the importance of the table. In fact, it goes on in verse 29. 
If we are eating and drinking of the table of the Lord without properly discerning what we are doing at the table, then we are doing nothing more than eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. Now that's more than, than, than allowing us to understand the celebration of the table merely as symbolic, merely as a ritual. It's like with baptism. There's something more that is taking place in baptism than just a mere empty ceremony. Well, so it is also with the table. There's something more that is happening when we come to worship Christ at the table than just an empty ritual or empty ceremony. Otherwise, God would not lay these warnings upon us. In fact, this goes on in verse 30 to say that it's because believers in Corinth were not partaking in the table of the Lord the way the Lord called them to. They were not discerning rightly what they were doing at the table. And it's because of that, for this reason, Paul says, some of you are weak and sick and some have even fallen asleep. What is that, a euphemism? Is that right? A euphemism for dying in the Lord. Now, that's a radical statement in that verse. And it flies in the face of our naturalistic explanations of things that happen in our, in our day and in our churches. You know, if a church body is walking through a season of extended illness, extended disease, extended suffering, you have to begin asking yourself the question, Lord, are we doing something wrong? Now, trial and suffering, it's always going to mark our lives. But when a corporate body experiences that kind of discipline, the discipline that's described here in 1 Corinthians 11, why, are, why is our gut reaction not immediately to start asking, Lord, what do we need to repent of? We explain it away with naturalism. We've adopted the view of the world, thinking that there are just naturalistic explanations behind everything that happens, and we've thrown the supernatural out. Well, here God says that when you partake in the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, He will allow you to be weak. That probably in the context here means spiritual weakness, spiritual impotence. You have no confidence, no vigor, no zeal. You feel dead. He'll allow you to be weak. He'll allow us to get sick. He'll even allow us to die to discipline us so that we would begin partaking in the table of the Lord in a worthy manner. Now, all of that communicates to me that God holds the importance of the table very highly. Now, though you wouldn't think it today, this is why, historically speaking, the Lord's table has been one of the most contentious topics among Protestants since the time of the Reformation. You wouldn't know that today because we're not arguing about it anymore. And I don't know if that reflects a maturing process in the church where we've just been refined enough where we don't argue like that anymore or whether that actually shines more on our ignorance of the issues and what's really at stake. I think, I think we don't care because we don't know is my, my point. But that aside, when the Protestant church began breaking away from Rome and Rome's abuse of the table and the sacrifice of the mass, we're going to look at that next week. When the Protestant church began breaking away from Rome 
everyone was taking this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 very seriously. And they were trying to figure out what the right understanding of this section of Scripture is because there's a weighty uh, promise of judgment for improper participation in the table. And throughout the history of the Protestant Reformation, even up until the 1800s, you have fierce debates taking place over the true nature and importance of the table. For instance, you have a classic example in what is called the Marburg Colloquy. Marburg Colloquy, C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-Y, if you want to look that up. That was a meeting of reformers in 1529 uh, that gathered together to see if they could somehow unite the Reformation against the abuses of Rome. Now, there were others who attended that meeting, but the meeting was really focused upon two key reformers in the early 1500s. One of them was Martin Luther, and the other was Ulrich Zwingli. Or you can probably see his name written in other ways before. They got together to discuss 15 points of doctrine to see if they could come together and unite the Reformation that was taking place in Germany with the Reformation that was taking place in Switzerland. Right? And, and just as a parenthesis, there's debate as to which of those reformers actually sparked the Reformation. Some wonder if it was Zwingli, actually. But anyway, they got together to see if they could unite their two re reform movements against the abuses of Rome and in their efforts to recover the true gospel in the church. And as they worked through these 15 points, they came to almost absolute unity on 14 of the 15 points. But when it came to the issue of what takes place at the Lord's table, they were all of a sudden divided. And we'll talk about Luther's view of the table next week. But I think what's important to recognize is that even though they had unity on 14 of those 15 primary doctrines, their differences over how to view and understand the table of the Lord caused Luther to say of Zwingli, he is of a different spirit than us. In other words, he's an unbeliever. He's an apostate. He's a false teacher that has been brought into the church. That's just one example from history of how the church body has really thought more highly of what takes place in the table than what we tend to nowadays. In fact, in the 1550s, John Calvin believed that what was taking place in communion at the table was so important that he was willing to die rather than let people partake in the table unworthily. He laid his life on the table and said to ungodly people who came to partake in the table, I will not let you partake in this table. You're going to have to kill me before you do that. Now, to lay your life down over the celebration of the table in order to guard it and protect it from those who have partake of it unworthily, that means that you understand something about its significance that really falls on deaf ears in our day. Or you can go to the 1740s, where Jonathan Edwards has been pastoring his church for 20 years in Northampton. But he was kicked out of his church over a matter relating to the Lord's table. Not viewing the table as a converting element, something that would convert ungodly sinners to Christ, but rather viewing it as something that should only be partaken of among true believers. That got him kicked out of his church. But he was willing to accept that cost in order to stand for what he viewed to be true. 
So worship at the table has been a very serious matter throughout the history of the church. And I don't mean to belabor this, but I just I want us to understand that there's something more important going on here than just a ritual or a ceremony. And we have a rich heritage of brothers and sisters who have gone before us that are bearing witness to that fact, that this is important. I think part of the problem, if I can, if you can come with me for a minute, I think part of the problem in our day is that we have had the meaning and significance of ceremony vacuumed out of our souls. Just, there's nothing that carries meaning anymore, right? Post-World War I, post-World War II, even civil, going back to Civil War, these wars have done something to us, right? Vietnam, atrocious, right? You look around at the world today, and, and you just find yourself thinking, what's the point here? We've we've allowed the significance of ceremony to be stripped away from us. And now whenever we come to something that's ceremonial but is supposed to have deep meaning, we don't know how to think of it anymore. And I've used this illustration before. That's how we can have a president belonging to the Democrat Party whose platform is based upon atheism still lay his hand upon a Bible and swear an oath to uphold his office. It's an empty ceremony at that point that historically has had great meaning. And I don't just want to point outside of the church whenever we're talking about this, this element. We've, as, pastor, as a pastor, as believers in this church, you guys know we've all been challenged on these issues this last year. What actually is important? What actually is necessary? What does it really mean to gather together and be the church? I mean, when we're looking at people like Calvin and Edwards and Luther and Zwingli, and even the believers who endured the tyranny of the Roman Empire, and our Baptist forefathers who partook in the table at the expense of their lives, when we see these men willing to die rather than allow the the celebration of the table to be lost or to be corrupted, and then we find in ourselves trouble even to come to a worship service to partake in the table of the Lord because we're scared of getting a virus, something is wrong. Something is wrong. It's always been dangerous for the people of Christ to gather together. Don't you know that? It's always been a challenge. It's always been weighing the cost. Is worship of Christ worth my life? If I say yes, it is, then regardless of the risk, I better be there. This this is a problem. And I'm not trying to be harsh. And I'm not trying to get out you know, the rod and spank some people or any of us on this issue. I'm just trying to point out that our perception of what is important historically to the church and the worship of God has been so radically altered that some people still haven't returned to corporate worship and it's been a year and a half. Like, what does that say about what we view the church as? How we view the worship of Christ that takes place in the assembly? If we believe you can just sit at home and watch a sermon online and still get fed the same way you would get fed if you were gathering with Christ's people physically, 
All that does is speak to the shallowness of the experience of true religion and spirituality in our church gatherings. It doesn't justify what's taking place out there. It's saying, we've missed it. And something's got to change. Something has to change. I was so encouraged to hear a brother say they were gathering as a church body. This was like last July, maybe. And his grandmother was just shocked that they would be meeting in person. And this brother so graciously and so kindly said to his grandma, you know, grandma, we just view worship of Christ together as one body as more important than any one of our individual lives. And if we get sick and die, we're willing to accept that for the sake of worship. What am I rambling on about? (laughs) I'm talking about the importance of the table and the fact that the church historically has viewed what is taking place at the table as something that is worth dying over. And I think if we are going to get to the point where we have that same perspective, we need to return to the Scriptures and ask ourselves, what do the Scriptures say about the significance of what's taking place at the table? Now, I was intending to get further today, but I think we're going to end it there. And next week, we're going to return to consider four parts from Scripture of why the table is significant. Four things from Scripture concerning the significance of the table. One is, it's a table of remembrance. It's where we come to remember the gospel. The core proclamations of Christ dying for sinners, rising again victorious, coming back to save them and bring them to His eternal glory. It's a place, a table of thanksgiving. Number three, it's a table of celebration. And then number four, it's a table of communion. And we're going to get through those, Lord willing, next week. So as we come to the end now, why don't you take your communion cups and get them ready. We will uh, move to celebrate the Lord at His table. Well, I at least intended to get to the table of the Lord as a table of remembrance this morning. But when we're talking about the table of the Lord as a means of grace, that is one of the key factors that has to play into our understanding. It is a, it is a place where we come to remember Christ. And it's in our remembrance of Christ as those who have been born again, those who are filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit that is supposed to take the things of Christ and exalt them before the eyes of believers. When a believer has the Spirit of Christ dwelling within them and they hear the Gospel being preached or they are presented with the elements that cause us to remember that Gospel, the Spirit is pleased to own that moment and encourage and strengthen our hearts in the truth of Christ. When we come to the table and we're partaking of these elements of remembrance, as we are actively remembering the gospel, there should be worship that is taking place. This should not be an empty ceremony. If we experience it as an empty ceremony, we need to go to the Lord and begin asking why. Lord, why is this not more significant to me? I find myself 
wrestling with God over that issue. When I hear and I feel and I, I, I eat the bread that represents the holy body of Christ being offered up as a sacrifice for my sins, why does that not impact me more? Is it that I've forgotten my former cleansing? Has my heart grown cold in remembering the, the cesspool of filth and ungodliness that Christ raised me out of? Have I forgotten that? To hear of the Lord of glory bearing in His body my sins when He hung upon the tree. Have I forgotten what it means to be a sinner in the presence of God? Oh Lord, help me remember as I partake in the bread of the table, help me remember the glory of the gospel. Change me, Lord. Make me new. Make me whole in Christ by knowing that Christ has done everything I need Him to do to guarantee forgiveness of my sins. To reconcile me to the Father. So we remember the bread. When we take up the cup and we remember Christ shed His blood to cover over all of our ungodliness in the eyes of God. He shed His blood so that He could dip the robe of righteousness in His blood and clothe us in it. Thy blood and righteousness, Lord. My beauty are, my glorious dress, we just sang. We remember the blood of Christ as that which was spilt to guarantee the Father's promise that all who come to Christ will find forgiveness of sins. Why, when we partake of the cup in, in light of that, does it not affect us more? It's a table of remembrance. And as we come to remember, we ought to be praying that in our remembrance, the Lord would strengthen our souls and deepen our resolve and commitment to follow after the Lamb, the Lamb of God that was slain.